The first part of this paper is a paraphrase on a remark made by Martin Luther. It's called, Here We Stand. Not here I stand, but here we stand. The question of justification is central to the Christian faith because it describes the process of salvation. As such, there's hardly any area of Christian speculative theology or doctrine that is not impacted by the question. Indeed, one could say, as Martin Luther certainly implied, that any theological endeavor that does not address the central and overriding concern of justification is of little use and may also be perceived as false or obstructive. This perception can perhaps also be understood as the first set in a set of unifying principles, since other reformers, not just Martin Luther, who may have disagreed with Luther about a host of other issues, as well, believe it or not, as Catholics, would also concur with one another regarding the importance and centrality of human justification as a soteriological, that is a fancy word for a salvation question, or sorry, a salvation soteriological necessity. So in simple English, from the 16th century onwards, it wasn't just the Lutherans saying that justification was the central theological issue for the church. It was every branch of Christendom, even the Catholics. It may come as a surprise, but it's true. It is ironic in that light uh, that the very importance of this shared interdenominational perception would also be the cause of passionate debate covering a host of related subjects and used as the primary reason for the division of Western Christendom. The historical commencement of that story of interaction and challenge, which initiated the movement known as the Reformation almost exactly 500 years ago, is well known. So a little bit of history to review. It will suffice here, yes, as I just said, to briefly review the issues as they arose in the experience of the Augustinian monk Martin Luther in order to establish a concrete context for what would become a long and highly complex process of discernment and dogmatic speculation slash proclamation continuing into modern times. In his fourth volume dealing with the history of the church titled The Protestant Reformation, the French Catholic writer Henri Daniel Rope makes an astounding assertion. This is to a Catholic here. I can't imagine how it's going to hit yours. Uh, the historical sale of indulgences, he writes, had a positive and salutary effect throughout late medieval Christendom, both in a material way, he cites the example of the finances acquired in order to literally rebuild the French church in the aftermath of the Hundred Years' War, and in a spiritual way, as the disposition of the penitent would have already been orientated to a state of grace linked to the reception of the sacrament of penance. In other words, they'd been good boys and girls and gone to confession before they got the indulgence. Now, however, such an assertion affects the sensibility of a modern believer, whether Catholic or Protestant, Daniel Rope's insight is valuable as it undoubtedly reflects attitudes still prevalent in the early modern world of Martin Luther. The sale of indulgences, why, how, what was it all about? As well as the theology justifying such action in the early 16th century church, specifically the Saxon-German purview of the hapless Dominican salesman, Johann Tetzel, who was 
commission to sell indulgences you know, on Luther's patch, so to speak. The resulting protest made public on October 31st, 1517 by Martin Luther, a university professor, ordained priest, and highly regarded member of the Augustinian order, as he nailed his 95 theses to the door of the chapel at the, at the castle in Wittenberg, triggered the movement known as the Reformation. He was 34 years old. It is significant to note that though many issues of perceived ecclesial abuses, like the uh, sale of indulgences and oh, any number of other things, uh, and errors were noted, that the assertion of justification by faith in Christ alone, and it's important to say that, even though everybody knows that Scripture does not say alone, it's important to say it nevertheless to understand the intent of Luther. He wanted to get past anything which would impugn, A, the centrality of the Paschal mystery, the cross of Jesus, in terms of our salvation or any kind of human structure that would seek to claim the right to mediate it. That alone is very, very important. So let me just repeat. Even so, sorry, even so, oh, is dominant, sorry, justification by faith in Christ is dominant and represents the summation of Luther's arguments in the 95 Theses. Even so, as important as the catalytic, catalytic issue of the sale of indulgences and later their very existence, as well as a host of other perceived aberrations in the conduct of the Catholic Church was to the formation of Luther's initial protest and articulation of, the, of, the, of his doctrine of justification by faith. It has often been noted that his interior disposition affected him far more profoundly than what was going on exteriorly in the 16th century church. The two, of course, may not have been unrelated, and much discussion has taken place over the centuries as to what that relationship might have been. It will suffice here to say that Luther attests before his experience of enlightenment, probably sometimes in the years between 1514 to 17, possibly as late as 1518, that his perception of Christ was as a hangman and his initial disposition one of desolation and despair. As an aside, I've got to watch the time here, but as an aside, I was speaking with Harvey over coffee yesterday, and he says, do you, he's, now, here's part of my revenge, Harvey. He said, he said, do you find reading Martin Luther just a little bit turgid? And I said, well, no, not really. What strikes me about Luther, though, is his incredible way with words. Now, unfortunately, he usually is, is haranguing, in my opinion, at least. I mean, to, but to call Christ a hangman, you know, I mean, he doesn't think he is one, but to, to have had that perception, what a powerful image. I mean, who would think to describe Christ in those terms? Really, I think Martin Luther was a linguistic genius. Back to the paper. The substance of the Enlightenment experienced by Luther was based on readings in Romans 1.17 and 3.21-31, through 31, which would serve as a scriptural foundation for the subsequent Lutheran, indeed Protestant, assertion of the many ramifications of what justified faith, justification by faith alone might mean. This would, of course, have a profound effect on nearly every aspect of interior and exterior Christian belief and practice that in turn would form the basis for the emerging existence of many denominations within the Western Church, a process that continues to this day. For Martin Luther, it is clear that the passages discovered in Romans 1.17 and 3.21 following served as a kind of antidote to the view of God suggested as an 
in an erroneous understanding of what divine justice might entail. Basically, complete and utter punishment for sins that acquainted him instead with the sweet consolation of divine mercy rooted in the saving power, as I said already, of the Paschal Mystery, the cross of Jesus Christ. This quality of mercy was understood by Luther to be complete in the sense of fully justifying a believing sinner, pure gift in the sense of proceeding solely by God's grace, and thus necessarily wholly vicarious, and as a kind of corollary, the agency of human will was, in respect to justification, entirely nullified. Luther says over and over again, humans do not possess free will. Sin has obliterated that. We rely on the free gift of God for justification. It's the only way. This effects had, had affected a radical separation within the economy of justification between faith in the freely given saving power of God and human works. Now we'll return to that subject in the end of this paper, which were understood to be wholly inadequate and unable to contribute to the process. The Catholic response to Lutheran and subsequently denominations coalescing around other reformers' suppositions regarding the nature of justification, and particularly the relation of human will and agency to it, was swift and found at the highest levels of magisterial authority. A polemic was thus established within the fractured fabric of Western Christendom that persists to this day and has a direct, albeit in this case negative, relevance to the question implied by the title of this paper. What might various understandings of what is meant by justification by faith mean today? Well, one of the things it means today is that we're living with the reality of a fractured church, and that's just a fact. We need to acknowledge it and, well, talk to one another about it. Leaving that for the moment aside, however, it is first important to briefly examine the position of the 16th century Catholic Church. Two sources will suffice here. First, in his bull, Exurge Domine, promulgated against errors perceived in Luther's understanding of divine grace and thus justification by faith in 1520, Leo X lists several objections that shed light by way of antithesis on the Catholic position regarding the effects of divine grace, human will, and the question of justification. The necessity of good works as visible manifestations of justification is affirmed as, he, as is the created grace mediated by the sacraments, particularly baptism. And then the Catholics would stand on Scripture, incidentally, as would the Lutherans, but coming at it from a different point of view, because Scripture says quite clearly that baptism is necessary for salvation. Now, interestingly enough, uh, here I am on an aside, the Catholic Church does not teach this today. It's very interesting. It doesn't. We still teach the importance of baptism, certainly. We still acknowledge that Christ instituted the sacrament, for salvation, for the impartation of grace. But God is bigger, the Catholic Church says, although I'm paraphrasing crassly. God is much bigger than any sacrament, any institution, anything but God, and we must not ever limit him in that way. This from Lumen Gentium, chapter 2, but I'll talk more about that later. So... The necessity, back to, 
poor old Leo X. The necessity of good works as visible manifestations of justification is affirmed, as is, oh, I just said that, the creative grace mediated by the sacraments, particularly baptism, and as a result of both, human will is engaged, this is the Catholic viewpoint, for better or worse, in a kind of partnership with the Holy Spirit, or lack thereof, in the economy of salvation. In other words, it's not all done for us. We have something to do as well. And there's kind of the crux of the issue, at least as the 16th century reformers and the 16th century Roman Catholic Church saw it. It is not, however, until the convocation of the sixth session of the Ecumenical Council held at Trent in 1547 that the Catholic Church was able to fully articulate its position regarding justification by faith in response to what was perceived quite clearly as a Protestant challenge. Several significant aspects of that position should be noted. First, justification which begins and ends with faith is understood within a threefold, somewhat chronological aspect. The movement when justification is attained, its preservation and increase, and its recovery after having been lost by sin. Faith functions differently in each of these three aspects of the process of justification, and particularly in the second and third phase, is aided by grace mediated by a sacrament, which in turn is mediated by the church. Obviously, fraught with tremendous danger, we're talking a human institution that is nevertheless claiming a divine authority, which of course goes back to the crux of the criticism leveled by the 16th century reformers at the Catholics. The Catholics, however, will continue to affirm that and do to this day. Significantly, the first chapter of the decree concurs with the spirit of Luther's insight that humanity, by its own efforts of reason or will, is unable to justify itself. This is followed in chapter 2 with the assertion that justification is only through through the expiatory grace of Christ. Now, this is Trent we're talking about. This is the official 16th century Catholic tradition. This is followed in chapter 2 with the assertion that justification is only through the expiatory grace of Christ received by faith with an explicit reference to Romans 3.25. So the positions do not begin that far apart between Luther, say, and the Council of Trent. This grace of redemption justification is offered to the whole world. The Lutherans and the Catholics both reject the radical predestination, Augustinian form of predestination espoused by other reforming uh, confessions. Yet, in chapter 3 of the decree on justification from Trent, the effect of that justifying grace offered to all is only received to those who are reborn in Christ, a euphemism for baptism. If, If you are not baptized, you can't get into heaven. This is clarified in chapter 4, and the question then arises, does this imply faith? Well, yes, but only by implication. The word faith is not used. The Catholic Church is going to take refuge where it had always taken it. In the sacraments, faith obviously implied, but the word does not come up at this phase in this sense. Chapter 5 is of great significance. Baptized adults have been justified by a predisposing grace of God through Jesus Christ with no existing merits of their own. That could have come straight from the pen of Martin Luther himself. 
It is through that justification that they are disposed by God's grace, inciting and helping them to turn toward their own justification by giving free assent to and cooperating with this grace. And that is a key phrase. Because that phrase is going to invite us, us who are believers, into some kind of ownership of that process initiated by God, even completed by God, but nevertheless necessarily assented to by us. In simple English, God gives us the opportunity to say no to that freely given gift. The Lutherans would not disagree with this, as far as I know, and the Catholics would not disagree with this either. This is another point held in common by the two denominations. The door is thus left open to the efficacy of works, not in justification's inception, but in the subsequent process of conversion. Now, obviously, this is the Catholic viewpoint again. A fruit of the initial justification brought about through faith would also correspond to the insight treasured by Luther, however, namely that once justified, the believer would turn from fear of divine justice, which profitably strikes them, to thoughts of God's mercy. That's a direct quotation from Trent, but again, it could have just as easily come from the pen of Martin Luther. Differences, however, between Catholic perceptions and those of Luther and other reformers are explicitly stated in chapters 8 and 9. And I'm going to not read these verbatim, but I do want to paraphrase a bit. Let's see. Just to make you squirm a little bit. This is, this is, um, this is Trent firing the gun at, at the Protestants. Okay. Chapter 8. I'll read this because it's a shorter one. When the apostle says that a person is justified by faith as a gift, those words are to be understood in the sense which the perennial consent of the Catholic Church has maintained and expressed, namely that we are said to be justified by faith because faith is the first stage of human salvation, the foundation and root of all justification, without which it is impossible to please God and come to the fellowship of his children. And we are said to receive justification as a free gift because nothing that precedes justification, neither faith nor works, would merit the grace of justification. Now you might be thinking to yourself, well, this doesn't sound like, like firing a gun at the Protestants. Just hold on. For it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, as the same apostle says, we're quoting St. Paul here, grace would no longer be grace. But in chapter 9, we go on to say, but though it is necessary to believe that sins are not forgiven, not everybody's sins are forgiven, not everybody repents, nor have they ever been forgiven, save freely by the divine mercy on account of Christ. Nevertheless, it must not be said that anyone's sins are or have been forgiven simply because he has a proud assurance and certainty that they have been forgiven and relies solely on that. That is a direct slap at Martin Luther. That's how the Catholics are looking at him, all right? Which I hope you find interesting, all right? You might not believe, well, I hope you don't believe it either, but uh, I find it quite interesting. For this empty and ungodly assurance may exist among heretics and schismatics, as indeed it does exist in our day, and is preached most controversially against the Catholic Church. Neither should it be declared that those who are truly justified must determine within themselves beyond the slightest hesitation that they are justified. In other words, you can't know 
all right? You can't know. And actually, some of the reformers will say that too, but Luther won't, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the lines have been drawn, as I put it in the paper, thus. The stage was set for the enduring polemic which continues to divide Christendom, largely centered on the primary concern of how humans are justified before God, the nature and role of faith, scripture, Christian praxis, which is to say Christian action, human will, and the ecclesial ministries of magisterium and sacraments were all related in some way to that overarching central issue, yet were also somehow resolved into a single issue, which is within a universally acknowledged, though as we have seen, variously nuanced, assertion that justification proceeds from faith and is the freely given gift of God, what role then, if any, is played by human endeavor or cooperation with that justifying divine grace that faith has made accessible? This is the question which will always occur and reoccur. Put in other words, what is the relationship between faith and works? This was and remains a question of primary and central importance. Okay, this is, this is a, what I'm going to do now is, is give you another example from a different tradition than the Lutheran t- tradition of how these things can play out. It's a little bit of a digression, but I hope you find it as interesting as I did. Though few would challenge the notion that the polarization of Western Christendom into confessional denominations was accomplished without serious violence, in a material sense, but also in terms of mutual recrimination and dearth of charity, there were also positive effects as the process of Reformation eventually became universalized. The Catholics had one too. And the very nature of the confessional conversation, even in the sense of reaction to the other, mandated a closer look and clarification of the essentials of Christian faith. In simple English, we, we might not have been talking nice to one another, but we were talking, believe me. One is left to speculate on the true impact of what today would be called ecumenical dialogue in the centuries immediately following the Reformation, as crystallizing confessional differences manifested some surprising spiritualities due to the definition and redefinition of the praxis, that action of Christian life. The case in point that fascinates me would be those confessions which, unlike the Lutherans, followed the logic of justification by faith alone to a form of Augustinian predestination, which is, well, you know what that is, right? Okay, I think the paper itself will explain it. Manifest, um, John Calvin and Theocratic Geneva are perhaps the most famous examples of this particular fruit of the 16th century Reformation. But the speculative thought of Ulrich Zwingli and the establishment of the Reformation at Zurich also provide a fascinating window opening on some surprising vistas. I'll get back to predestination in a second. I'm going to see if I explain it here. Not least in regard to the question of justifying faith and its relation to good works, even sanctification, within the context of a radical kind of grace that is understood almost viscerally in terms of arbitrary divine election. That's Augustinian predestination. God chooses you presumably before the foundation of the world, for salvation. And there is nothing you can do whatsoever to affect that decision. This point of view was, come, was first pioneered, so to speak, by St. Augustine back in the 4th century. So it's, it's, it's not new to the Reformation. But it was picked up again by Calvin and Zwingli 
because just like Augustine, they wanted to honor and respect the absolutely unalienable sovereignty of God. Nothing could impugn God's freedom to act. And so, if you were saved, God freely saved you for his own freely chosen reasons. And if you were damned, the same was true. That's that point of view, which of course was rejected by both the Catholics and the Lutherans. So we're looking at a whole different, different uh, trajectory. But interestingly enough, that point of view freed up people like Zwingli to come to the point, well, let me get back to my paper here. Uh, one, let me see, yeah, I'll pick it up here. One might expect any consideration of human action in a Zwinglian universe to be pointless, of no account, or far worse, rooted in the ignorance of idolatry. And on a superficial, this in the technical sense of the word, level, this is so. But on a deeper level, however, and paradoxically, precisely because human agency had been so decisively removed from the soteriological equation, in other words, there is nothing whatsoever that we have to do with our own salvation. It is all in the purview of God's work. Because that, that radical notion has, has completely taken uh, any kind of human agency out of the picture, God's providence is understood to be all in all, and thus human good works may also be comfortably ascribed to it. So, again, in simple English, Martin Luther would say, sin boldly. Martin Luther would say, be the best beer brewer, the best baker that you can be. Martin Luther would say, quite specifically, that even baptism did not eradicate the actual effect of sin within you. It only affected that justification which was had through Christ's death. Zwingli would not disagree at all with that, but what Zwingli would say is, if you do something good, you're not doing it. God's doing it in you, and God can do whatever he wants. And so God can perfect, God can sanctify. Luther would never have gone there. That would have been anathema to him. Interesting. So what we find, actually I can save time by talking to you instead of reading from this sometimes. What we find is that the Zwinglian position in terms of human sanctification, in other words, let's be good people and really good, comes very, very close to the Catholic position of, say, a canonized saint, but for diametrically opposite reasons. Again, I find this absolutely fascinating, absolutely fascinating and a very fruitful ground, really, for dialogue, I would say. For Zwingli, human sanctification with attendant good works is a welcome aspect of God's sovereignty, and this extends from the individual to society as a whole. Finally, Zwingli famously decouples the sacraments from any soteriological role as impugning both divine sovereignty and, in certain cases, common sense, with the startling effect that goodness and truth being perceived in a fundamental aspect of divine providence, he reckons some righteous pagans to be among the elect in Christ. I don't know if you were aware of that. I was, I was shocked. Zwingli, of all people, reckons that there were pagans in heaven. Why? Because God's sovereignty is all in all. He will elect whoever he wants. He is not subject to anything, nothing whatsoever, not a sacrament, not a precept, only himself. And so if there is goodness, which Zwingli says self-evidently comes from God, and if a pagan is good, then clearly 
God has justified that pagan, not because they're good. On the contrary, God justified the pagan simply because God wanted to, for God's own good reasons, and then proceeded to make the pagan good to glorify himself. Again, this would have been anathema to Martin Luther. And really, it wouldn't have hit the ears of any 16th century Catholic well either. But, as I write, could Ulrich Zwingli's speculation on divine providence, human sanctification, and even election speak to some striking similarities found in the second chapter of Lumen Gentium, which is the keynote document of the Second Vatican Council, obviously Catholic, because Lumen Gentium, in chapter 2, clearly states that there can be pagans in heaven, and not for reasons really dissimilar from Zwingli. Now, obviously, the Catholic Church is not going to espouse uh, economic, um, what we would call in theology, uh, economic predestination, okay? It's not that. But what Zwingli's really interested in isn't simply another doctrine like predestination. What he's interested in is asserting the absolute inalienable sovereignty of God. God can do what God wants. And the Catholic Church in Lumen Gentium is saying precisely the same thing and coming to precisely the same conclusion, which is to say, Christ is all in all, make no mistake, and Christ will judge every human being. But there is no structure on earth, not even the most holy, which is able to contain the Holy Spirit. And so if a Muslim comes to that personal judgment and recognizes in Christ one that they knew without realizing that they knew him, they indeed can be and have been justified by him. This is what the Catholic Church says in Lumen Gentium. And strangely enough, it's what Zwingli said in 16th century Zurich. Absolutely amazing to me. So, where are we? Ah, how are we doing for time? Got to get a move on it here. A final case in point, clarifying progress made in the long, ongoing conversation will also serve as a conclusion for this, the first part of our study, involving the modern meaning and relevance of the assertion that we are justified by faith. It is in the title, after all. Quite literally, in the sense of dialogue happening today. And I'm so happy that we have Lutherans from Germany here, because what I want to talk about next is uh, the famous Declaration on the Doctrine of Justification issued in 1997, which was the fruit of dialogue, mainly between German Lutherans and Catholics, and also American Lutherans and Catholics. In the Declaration, many of the issues discussed in this paper were analyzed, not in a spirit of accusation, as we've seen too much of already tonight, or rancor, or of superficial compromise either. Rather, overall consensus was reached, they claim that it was reached, as well as differing emphases acknowledged on a number of issues revolving around justification by faith, not least the many questions pertaining to the role of human will and the place of works. Through a shared lens acknowledging interpretive problems, a foundational understanding that concrete forms of righteousness are indeed the fruits of faith, and, in this author's opinion, a nuanced form of language begging for any number of descriptive metaphors, 
to read this document is just incredible how careful they are with the language. You know, you can really tell that these people are trying hard, uh, indicating, yes, intricate, careful delicacy. It will suffice here to point out a few of the many important points articulated by the document. The first article, with eloquent brevity, bravely states both uh, the important centrality of the issue and the depth of the historic problem. Now, this is, I'm going I'm to read from the document itself. The doctrine of justification was of central importance for the Lutheran Reformation of the 16th century. It was held to be the first and chief article, quote from Martin Luther, and at the same time the ruler and judge over all other Christian doctrines, another quote from Martin Luther. The doctrine of justification was particularly asserted and defended in its Reformation shape and special valuation over against the Roman Catholic Church and theology of that time, which in turn asserted and defended a doctrine of justification of a different character. From the Reformation perspective, justification was the crux of all disputes. Doctrinal condemnations were put forward both in the Lutheran confessions and by the Roman Catholic Church's Council of Trent's. These condemnations are still valid today and thus have a church-dividing effect. However, I'm skipping a little bit here. It should, however, be noted that the biblical, oh, sorry. Um, the next part deals with biblical citations dealing with um, justification, which I, I didn't even quote in the paper, but I, 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 I point that out. But uh, here's, here's the part, uh, another thing that I'm going to read you. This is Article 13, which, which brings the consensus uh, to its point. Opposing interpretations and applications of the biblical message of justification were in the 16th century a principal cause of the division of the Western Church and led as well to doctrinal condemnations. A common understanding of justification is therefore fundamental and indispensable to overcoming that division. By appropriating insights of recent biblical studies and drawing on modern investigations of the history of theology and dogma, the post-Vatican II ecumenical dialogue has led to a notable convergence concerning justification with the result that this joint declaration is able to formulate a consensus on basic truths concerning the doctrine of justification. In light of this consensus, the corresponding doctrinal condemnations of the 16th century do not apply to today's partner. Now, those are absolutely astounding words. And if there was ever an assertion of modern relevance for the, for the doctrine of justification by faith, you've just seen it. To have Lutherans and Catholics talking to each other on this level and saying that because of progress in what we understand those still valid 16th century statements to mean, we have come to a consensus and realize that nothing essential has been compromised. Now, you may disagree with that. I'm just pointing out what they said, all right? And then they give any number of examples. Section 3, concisely describing the nature of Lutheran Catholic consensus on justification. I'll just read a few to give you a taste of it. One, fundamentally based on a joint understanding of Scripture, there is consensus between Lutherans and Catholics on the meaning of justification that is not subverted by differing explications in particular statements. In other words what would seem to me to be a no-brainer, that all three, all denominations in the 16th century realized and 
taught that we are fundamentally justified by faith is finally being realized by the churches as well. Let's see. All are called to God for salvation in Christ whom we receive through faith, which is itself a gift given by the Holy Spirit working through word and sacrament in the community of believers and at the same time leads believers to renewal of life brought to completion in eternal life. Now, if you get a chance to read the paper, spend some time with these kinds of remarks. Because as I said, the language is amazingly nuanced. Nowhere is the word works used, and yet works are all over the place in that paragraph. But they're there in a way that would not make Martin Luther uncomfortable, hopefully. And they're there in a way where the Catholics can then say, we understand what you mean in terms of your emphasis on the inalienable sovereignty of God in terms of justification. No human merit, no human act can ever affect that. But to receive it in abstraction is never anything that you taught either. Works are necessary, but they don't necessarily justify. Do you see the difference? Subtle, but very, very necessary and very, very powerful. Let's see. Okay, I'm going to conclude. Oh, let me read this, though, because it's an important way to conclude this, this first section. The final section of the document offers an explication of the consensus noted above and provides both Lutheran and Catholic uh, nuance slash emphasis on commonly held positions regarding justification. You can access it online, by the way. Just go home and Google uh, Joint Declaration of 1997 on whatever, on faith or whatever it's called leading from the heart-rending and thought-provoking doctrinal polemic of the Reformation to a modern application of profound dialogue that has made possible what would once have been unthinkable. This is why I didn't want to skip this section. That is, the imminent visit of the head of the Roman Catholic Church, Pope Francis, to celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Reformation with the Lutheran inhabitants of Lund, Sweden, on 31st October 2017. Now, I'm sure you were aware of that already, but, you know, two weeks from now, the Roman Catholic Pope will go to Lutheran Sweden to celebrate the Reformation with the inhabitants of the city of Lund. This would not have happened 20 years ago. This would not have happened 500 years ago, I guarantee you. Progress has been made. Modern relevance has been asserted. Okay, the way I would like to conclude this paper, I'm watching the time, Bishop, <laughs> is... Uh, <laughs> Kind of an experiment of mine. I'm, again, a little bit of a preamble here. Uh, for years, I've been thinking about this as a way to reconcile these two things. One, to do absolute honor and, yes, absolute honor to the Lutheran assertion, which would be shared by all the Reformers, that we are justified solely by faith in Jesus Christ. Period. This is the essence of our justification and that that very justification means that human agency, human will is involved which is going to lead to a form of works. I believe that this is biblical 
famously in James, faith without works is dead. And I believe that this is necessary. So let me uh, pick it up there. The final part of this analysis will seek to briefly address an aspect, of the, uh, an aspect of the assertion that we are justified by faith, which is relevant to modern concerns as ever it was in the past. Namely, how can one make a simultaneous claim that justification is vicarious in the sense that it is the freely given gift of God made manifest by Christ's paschal mystery without recourse to any merit of our own and at the same time assert the necessity of human freedom and cooperation in that process as opposed to mere passive receptivity or dissociated abstraction. Why is this important for the modern age? Because it can be demonstrated by antithesis. What we see today outside the door of places like this sorry I lost my place are a host of dehumanizing tendencies which have left many people feeling singularly alienated, disenfranchised, and disempowered on both a social and a psychological level. A concrete expression of Christian praxis, that is, real lived Christian life, animated by a faith that is neither conceived of nor experienced abstractly, has often acted as an antidote to this malice and continues to do so. And I cite in my footnotes the great social movements of our time, even Gandhi, claims to have been inspired by the Beatitudes, not to mention Desmond Tutu, Martin Luther King, on and on and on. Uh, Yeah. Let's see. Furthermore, an increasing tendency to view a perceived dichotomy between faith, often expressed in terms of words and action, expressed as deeds, as simple hypocrisy has become more and more prevalent, particularly as many have lost their faith, even as communication continues to increase. And so we see things like terrorists wagging moralizing fingers and yammering about God's will on the internet and the evening news, uh, and yet are often discovered when apprehended with computers loaded with pornography. Well, there's a radical dichotomy between faith and works if ever there was, right? Although they're not Christians, obviously. Um, But to give some Christian examples, a well-known American evangelical blamed the events of 9-11 on national sinfulness and by extrapolation blamed God uh, as the whole world listened in gate-mouth wonder. And, of course, various scandals and forms of infighting seem to emanate from the Vatican today, even as they did 500 years ago. Some things never change. The modern world is looking for clear evidence that the gospel of Jesus Christ does indeed have the power to save. Perhaps an answer to the conundrum could be found honoring and acknowledging the necessary sovereignty of God uh, and also the imperative of human praxis, that is, activity, even participation in the process of salvation by recourse to that rich fabric of Christian tradition that is less the purview of dogmatic theology than that of spirituality or, if I may dare to use the term, of mysticism. Beginning as did Martin Luther with Paul's letter to the Romans, it is abundantly evident that in Paul's conception, humanity before Christ could not be saved by observance of the law, not because that observance would not save, but because it was not possible for humanity, burdened by an impaired will to do so. From the 16th century to the present, all of the various denominations in the Western Church have concurred with this basic biblical supposition. Paul, however, goes on to say in his his letter to the Romans that the law is not nullified but established. And this is preceded by the admonition, going back, I think, to chapter 1, that this is preceded, or sorry, by the admonition significantly quoted from the Old Testament that God will render to every man according to his deeds. Well, that's in Romans 2. 
all right? So we need to take the whole picture seriously. For Paul, the concrete praxis of discipleship possesses a mystical quality, which in turn is expressed in a kind of existential immediacy. As the fused life of the crucified, risen Christ and the believer manifest the same soteriologic that is logical, that is to say, saving consequences in any given time or place. It is the only possible explanation for his otherwise outrageous statement that, this is from Colossians, in my flesh I do my share in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. I'm sure you've, you've, you've stumbled over that passage before. Everybody has. How dare he say a thing like that? What could be lacking in Christ's afflictions? And who would boast you know, in terms of making up for that lack. The only way he can do that is by describing a form of mystical life shared by the believer and the crucified risen Christ, characterized by the dual characteristics of suffering, philipsis in Greek, and consolation, exhortation, paraclesis, and represents the goal and summit of Christian discipleship. That this speaks to a kind of works-orientated Soteriology seems clear, but to paraphrase Paul, there is no room for boasting because the merit is not our possession. Rather, that of Christ's death and risen life mediated to the believer by faith. It's subtle, but I think it's very, very important. Now, I'm practically out of time, so I'm going to give you just a couple examples more, and then we'll wrap this up. My second example trying to reconcile or honor both statements about faith and justification and works and justification is taken from St. Augustine. A similar insight is found in his thought. Augustine is hugely influential on Catholics and many of the principal 16th century reformers alike. It should be said at the outset that no one could accuse Augustine of espousing a works-driven soteriology, relying in any way on human merit. He believed in predestination just as strongly as Calvin and Zwingli did. Furthermore, as Augustine enumerates at great length in his classic spiritual autobiography, The Confessions, the tendency towards sinfulness described in terms of disordered desire had paralyzed his will to the extent that his life was driven by trivial, even destructive pursuits and kept him in a permanent state of fearful anxiety. It was only through the subjective experience of interior illumination, that gift of God's grace, clearly understood and described as a gift mediated by Christ of himself, accompanied by an invitation to a living faith that Augustine could then claim a paradoxical kind of freedom to act, echoed before him by Paul that is only made possible by a will enabled to be obedient by divine grace. There's a paradox there. Paul expresses, he says, I'm Christ's slave. He turns around, he says, I'm free at last. In the sense that the revelation made through faith of God's agency of divine love, inclusive mercy in Christ, both enables and orientates Augustine's will in a way that was possible before because it had been inaccessible. He now discovers to his delight, as Paul did before him, that God has issued an invitation to a kind of partnership. Put in a different way, humans will follow love. It is what they were made for. Sin obscures the source and essence of that love, who is God, so that what is then followed can be understood to be a false love. Divine grace made accessible by faith reveals true love, that is to say God, and reorientates, thus enabling the will to do what it always wanted to do. Augustine writes, love and do what you want. 
he is not advocating some kind of hippie ethic. He's advocating the great liberating freedom of a man who was blind and now can see. In conclusion, let me just say, that's moving up to the great mystics of the 12th century, which really is my favorite century, so I'm a little bit biased here. We meet a man, <clears throat> I'm skipping a few here, but we meet a man named Richard of St. Victor, who I don't know if you've heard of before. He lives in the 12th century. He's actually from Scotland, so he's, he's British. We will conclude with him. Perhaps the greatest of the spiritual masters of the 12th century who may shed light on the properly understood relationship of faith and works is the Augustinian, another Augustinian, interestingly enough, Richard of St. Victor. In his work concerning the Trinity, Richard offers a proof of God's triune existence based on the scriptural assertion that God is love. <clears throat> that aspect of divine love, not understood as a mere ethic, but as the very nature of the Godhead, expresses itself first in a community of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, comprising the Godhead, and because it is infinite in nature, also in the overflowing act of creation. In other words, God is triune because God is love, and God creates for love. The identical reason, and because of that, Richard asserts, there is a real and direct affinity with one another in terms of the essence of God's being and the reason for creation. Richard describes God as being the self-diffusive good. Love pours itself out to reclaim that Pauline language, and his conception is wholly dynamic as lover and beloved constantly seek one another out. Building on this foundation and fully conscious of the illumination experienced by Augustine before him, Richard then describes the contemplative life in these terms as in Benjamin Minor. The soul is predisposed to God's illuminating grace, described in affective terms, the terms of love, the language of the heart. And in Benjamin Major, these are books he wrote, the direction and reciprocation of that illuminative grace is also described in affective terms, loving terms. Finally, throughout, as foundational for Paul, Augustine, the 12th century contemplatives, the gospel injunction to love, God and one another, is observed. This is the fulfillment of the law of the old covenant and the single commandment of the new covenant. The ability to observe that law was realized by Christ, perfected on the cross, and given as the grace of conversion through faith in Christ to believers. However one understands a possibility of assent, cooperation, or the reanimation of the human will as a product of redemption from sin, it seems that it would be folly to negate the efficacy of works if it is understood that they are not merely our own, but the works of Christ himself. Indwelling the one animated by God's freely given and sanctifying grace. Thus, as the faith that justifies is understood to be a gift, freely given by God, owing nothing to human merit, so good works can be understood in exactly the same way. As the fruit of that initial gift given by God, performed in and through us, by the indwelling Christ, as mediated by the grace imparted by the Holy Spirit. Thank you very much.